Hey, good morning, everyone. My name is John Cook, and it is a joy to be back with you all again. And it's so exciting to, to see everybody here. I, uh, I was sitting here, and I, I couldn't help but start taking some notes when Greg was speaking. And uh, uh, in both John and, and Greg and what they were saying, I, I recently read something, and this is free. This doesn't even come with the sermon, okay? This is free. Uh, I read something a couple weeks ago. We are at in Mount Ararat, we are in the process of redoing kind of our, uh, we're calling it a next step. What is the next step? I'm trying to get everybody to take a next step. And one of, one of the parts of the next step is this whole idea of discipleship. And in, in listening to this story, this idea of uh, how important it is that we have somebody, and I love what Greg said, to rub shoulders with as we walk along. But what I read recently was the passage from Hebrews where it talks about that we are spiritual infants. And the analogy that was given was as an infant, you require somebody to feed you. But even as little tiny infants, as they start maturing, I mean, as soon as one years old, I, I remember my son, when he started eating uh, by himself, he's like, you don't need to feed me. I got this. All right. And so as we start growing and maturing, we want to be fed. And then finally, when we become adults, it is our responsibility to then and go and feed others. But so many times we choose to stay in that infant stage. And so I'm excited to hear what you all are doing and the new plans of discipling and moving forward and becoming those adults in our spiritual walk to feed others. Not only do we feed ourselves, but then we, our responsibility to feed others. Greg, I appreciate your testimony so much. 18 years of sobriety. That is awesome. <clears throat> A little transparency here. Lord willing, creek don't rise and I don't pick up another drink. September 12th, I will have been sober for 26 years. One of the things that, and, and I immediately connected with Greg, is it's amazing how when we really make that decision to try something different and allow God to move in our lives, how things can truly change. We spend so much of our life, and this is for any of us, all right? You don't have to have been an alcoholic. You don't have to be an addict to learn that so many times we spin around, kind of like the dog, I have a stupid dog that chases its tail all the time. And man, that was me for a number of years. But when we actually start following Jesus and say, you know what, you get to point me in the direction, it makes it totally different. Now this ties into the message today. I want to tell you a little bit about myself, three years sober in 1995, though I had always believed in a God, and a lot of us say that, I've always believed in a God, but it was 1995 where I actually had a very dear friend of mine by the name of John McCormick, and if John, if you ever watch this lesson, you are part of my story. John McCormick asked me a profound question. I understand you believe in God, but have you ever considered a relationship with Jesus? 
That's new to me. I had no idea what that meant. I thought it was all about believing God. In the process of coming up with that next step class, I read one time where if we just believe in God, congratulations, that brings you right up to the level of a demon. And I was like, what? The book of James talks about that even the demons believe. See, there's something more that goes with that. And that idea of entering into relationship with Jesus is so vital to all of us. See, I was baptized in 1989. I met my wife. We were dating. And because of this kind of knowing about God, I started going to church with her. And one Sunday morning after about six Sundays in a row of the preacher clearly reading my email, and this was before there was even email. Um, believe it or not, kids, there was a time. No. Um, and I was sitting in, of course, the very back row, wanted to kind of be innocuous and just kind of slide in and slide out. Um, and after six weeks of him constantly talking, I was like, okay, I got to do something with this. And this was in the day where you had to walk the long, the, the, the walk of shame down the aisle. Um, if you want to confess Jesus and you know, come forward and all of these things. It was very uncomfortable. But I found myself about three-fourths of the way down the aisle before I even realized what happened. And that morning, I was actually baptized. I wish I could tell you that in 1989 that I followed Christ. I started becoming a disciple, a lifelong learner of Jesus. Instead, what I did, I took the dip for the trip. I got baptized. I knew I needed to do that, but I didn't have any reason or understanding why, but I did it. It would be six more years until I actually entered into the church and began to walk with Jesus and began to become a disciple, a lifelong learner of Jesus and enter into relationship with him. It was John McCormick that invited me to a promise keeper. This was a time, some of you may remember the promise keepers. There's big stadium gatherings of men where there'd be 50, 60, 70,000 men and world-class speakers. Uh, and it was a weekend-long uh, event. They were phenomenal, just phenomenal. But they had these, what they called these awakening meetings where they would go around areas about two, three months before the main event and try to build up this, this idea and this momentum to get people to go to the stadiums. And so I was sitting there with John McCormick and it was a, a day-long thing. And at the end of it, and throughout the whole thing, the, you know, Scripture says in Acts that our hearts were burning. There was something that was happening as I listened to each of those speakers. And then finally, the last speaker came up and he gave the invitation. And I tried my best to stay in my seat. I didn't want to go forward, but doggone it if I didn't stand up. A gentleman by the name of Paul came over to me. Irony? I think not. A gentleman by the name of Paul and he put his arm around me, and he took me out in the hallway, and he began to talk to me. And i got to be honest with you, I don't remember a single word he said. 
But I remember there were tears streaming down my face. And he said, John, why don't you pray? I've never prayed before. Not openly. Well, I've thrown up the, oh, God, help, when I put myself in a situation. But that Saturday afternoon, February 11th, 1995, in a hallway outside a hotel ballroom, the prayer that came out of my mouth was, oh, God, I'm a sinful man. Help me. I tell you not to brag about that. But that moment was an absolute turning point in my life. Everything changed from there. At that moment, I said, Jesus, you are Lord and Savior of my life. You are who I'm going to follow. See, everything I had done up to that point in my life had brought me to that point. And I was ready at the big Y in the road to make a choice. Will I continue down this road or will I go another route. And I chose that day that I will follow you, Jesus. And in God's perfect timing, the next morning, February 12th, 1995, I received a phone call from my dad. Now, my family was very tight. We were very, uh, it's just my sister and I and my mom and dad, we were a very tight-knit family. We always heard that we were loved by our parents, but we were not reared in the church. My dad was my hero. My dad flew for the Navy. I wanted to follow in his footsteps. Uh, I, he, was, he was the man that I wanted to be. But on that Sunday morning... As I am getting ready to go to church for the first time in years, the phone rings, and it's my mom and dad. And my dad's on the phone. How are you, son? Good. Hey, we've got some news we've got to share with you. You may want to sit down. Okay, Dad, what do you got? You guys are moving. What's happening? I have cancer. I have lung cancer. And it's not operable. And we aren't sure what's going to happen. I remember hanging the phone up that day and literally saying this out loud to my wife. Yesterday, I professed Jesus as Lord. And today, I don't know what to do. And I chose at that moment to pray the only prayer I knew at the time. God, help us. Help my dad. Dad would go on to die. This was February 12th. Dad died July 3rd of that year. Fast forward a little bit to 2011. I am now a follower of Christ. I have gone to seminary. I have gone into ministry. I am a senior pastor of a church. Okay, let's be honest. I was the only pastor at this church. I was the pastor and the plumber and all of it, okay? My first official act as an official pastor at a church was to unclog a men's toilet. 
and I thought, lest I ever think too highly of myself. I'd been in this church for almost 10 years. And through a number of things, the last couple of years had been very difficult. And I finally came to the decision in December of 2011 that I was going to resign. I had no other job lined up. I had no idea what I was going to do. Uh, but it was time. That season at that church was over. And so in speaking with the elders of the church, we were trying to figure out when would be a good time for me to read my letter of resignation to the church. We decided it would be the second weekend, the second Sunday in January, right after the new year. We could start that process and do a very smooth transition to the next step. We'll see on December 30th of 2011, my mom, who was suffering with dementia and had just moved in with us, had a massive stroke in the middle of my living room. We rushed mom to the hospital, and it was crazy because when we were in the living room, mom was completely, she was unconscious, and then she came to, and she didn't understand what was going on, and she started getting her wits about her again. The rescue squad was there, she was joking with them, she was fine. By the time we got to the hospital, my mom couldn't see anymore. Within 15 minutes, she had gone into a coma, and she would never recover from that again. About 24 hours later, she passed away on New Year's Eve of 2011. My mom's memorial service was this Saturday before I was supposed to read my letter of resignation. And so Saturday, I in preparing to bury my mom. And Sunday, I stood before my congregation that I loved dearly, but I said it was time to leave. And I went home, and the wait was incredible. And my son came up and asked me, and he goes, Dad, is this the worst day of your life? I said, oh, absolutely not, son. And in just a moment, I, I started thinking, one of the beautiful things about our worst day of our lives in Christ Jesus and over time, they can become our greatest days. See, in 1995, when I was just starting to learn what it was to follow Jesus, John McCormick was telling me, hey, John, I need for you to go and read the book of James. I love the book of James. It's practical. But he told me to read it. John even bought me my first Bible. And I went home that night, and I read James chapter 1. And James says, Rejoice in your hardships, because you know the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Whew. And I actually tossed it on the floor, and I said, Oh, no. But see, this is the beauty. I went back the next day to John. I said, how dare you have me read that? And he goes, he just smiled at me. And he goes, go back and read it again. And read it again. And read it again. Between the time that I first read that, 
and the time that my father died. 18 weeks. I went from, oh God, help us. Oh God, save my dad. To the night before my dad died. Oh God, take him. We have said everything we need to say. He knows that he is loved by his family. And I know that I am loved by my dad. It is time. And so dad peacefully, peacefully went into the presence of God. Three days before my dad died, I was able to bring my dad to the Lord. Amen. In the midst of great sadness, there was incredible joy. In all of these bookend experiences I've had, there is great sadness. But I now have a history of joy that comes from God. Maybe some of you are there right now. We don't rejoice in the pain. We don't rejoice in the suffering. We don't rejoice in the situation. But we know if we have followed Jesus in any time at all, we know that even in the midst of these trials, there can be incredible joy. Or maybe the better word is a sense of true peace. When we look at the Psalms of Ascent, and we have been, you all have been looking at those, there's no coincidence that I was asked to preach on Psalm 126. What a beautiful psalm it is. And I wrestled with this. When Ryan told me, he goes, I want you, I want you to do Psalm 126. I'm like, great, okay. And I read it, and I'm like, I got no idea what I'm going to talk about. And as I wrestled with it, and as I wrestled with it, and as I wrestled with it, and even last night when Ryan and I were talking, I was still wrestling with it. It came. See, these psalms of ascent were great songs that were sung by the people as they were gathering along the way and going up to Jerusalem. You all know this. It has been covered with you all before. But three times a year, the Jews, Israel, would gather in, up in Jerusalem and they would celebrate the Lord. And along the way, they would chant and sing these songs of what God had done in the past and the joy that they had experienced in the past. And though they may be struggling in the current time, they knew that there would be joy once again. And Psalm 126 is all about the joy. So if you've got your Bibles, let's go ahead and read this together, okay? Now, I'm reading from the NIV, and let me just read this out loud. Psalm 126, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Now, what the psalmist is writing about here is the idea of those that were in exile, the Jews who had been taken into captivity. Jerusalem had been completely demolished. Jews were scattered all over the Middle East, what we now know 
the Middle East. Some were taken to Assyria. Some were taken to Babylon. Many were killed, slaughtered. But after this time of exile, those that survived were allowed to come back. It was a miracle. And the Jews remembered that. He says, we were like those who dreamed. We couldn't have imagined this could have happened. Our mouths were filled with laughter. Our tongues with songs of joy. We remember what it was like. Then it was said among the nations. Even the nations recognized how miraculous it was of these triumphs that the Israelites had had over their history. The nation said, the Lord has done great things for them, for Israel. The Lord has done great things for us, and we're filled with joy. Israel realized what God had done. And then they go into this, restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. See, what happened here and what the Jews were doing as they're marching up to Jerusalem, they are looking back at the history of the joy and what God had done in their lives with full expectations as they go to celebrate their God that those blessings will come again. In our darkness, in the nighttime of our life, we know that there will eventually be a dawning. Where are you right now? What darkness are you in? What are the things that you're groping for in the darkness? Do you have a history of joy in the Lord? Or have you been like my dog? Or maybe you were like me. The psalmist gives two examples here in, the, in how God is going to restore Israel again. The first one is the idea of the Negev. The Negev is a desert region in Palestine. Most of the year, it is sun-baked land. And there are grooves that have been drilled into the, the landscape through wind and erosion. But one time out of the year, it rains. And those rains come and they fill the Negev, which for most times is a desert. But in this time of the year, it becomes a flourishing area of agriculture and growth and beauty. But then just like there's a cycle, all of that goes away and the land becomes baked again. But see, as the Jews are marching up to Jerusalem, they're so excited about this that they're like, hey, we know that there is a season where it doesn't rain. But we do know because God is faithful and God has shown us in the past, there will be those rains again. 
there will be those refreshing rains that will restore us. And so regardless of where you are, are you prepared to wait out the period and to rest in Jesus and to follow Jesus and allow him in his timing to bring the refreshing rains that you need? Will you rejoice in your suffering? Will you rejoice in your trials knowing that God is doing something to you and for you? The second example in verses 5 and 6 in this psalm is the idea of those who sow. We've all heard the story of the two farmers. Both of them are waiting on rain. One goes out and plows the fields and plants the seeds and sits there and prays for God. The other one stays in his house and does nothing and prays for rain. Which one do you think will reap a harvest? It's the one who does the labor in advance. See, in sowing seed, the only account that I know of where seed is dropped and immediately it grows is Jack and the Beanstalk. What we do is we sow and we trust. We sow and we trust. What is your disappointment? That's the seed that you have now. What is the pain that you have in your life? That is the seed that is being sown right now. What are the setbacks in your life? Those are the seeds that need to be sown. What are the situations in your life that need to be sown and given to God and to trust him that he can make it better, that he will make it better? Because he has shown us in the past that not only is he capable of doing it, but he wants to do it. But in our suffering, there is always a season that requires the hard work. The seed, when it is sown, has to go into the dirt. The seed has to die, Jesus says. For anything to grow, it must die first. Is there any coincidence that Jesus tells us that we need to pick up our cross daily and follow him? We need to die to ourselves so that God can change us, mold us, shape us, and make something completely brand new out of us. See, that's what God God is in the redemption business. God can take people. God can take situations. God can take events. And though they may be painful at the time, if we sow those in Jesus Christ, he can bring a harvest again. Amen? Amen! If you have your Bibles, I'm, I challenge you to flip to John chapter 7, the Gospel of John, chapter 7. James, I've referred to him about five or six times, the book of James, is actually written by Jesus' brother. And in John chapter 7, you're going to see the relationship between James and John. 
And James really mocks his older brother here. See, James doesn't believe that Jesus is who he says he is. And so on the Feast of Tabernacles, understand, Jerusalem is going from a small city that is swelling up this time of the year from a few thousand people to maybe a couple million people. Folks are coming from all directions, going uphill. They're ascending up to Jerusalem for this Feast of Tabernacle. And James is telling Jesus, well, you know, if you're who you say you are, shouldn't you be at the feast? And Jesus says, I'm not going. What he, I believe he was telling James is, I'm not going now. And you're not going to dictate to me what needs to happen. See, in the Feast of Tabernacles, one of the things they did, not only would they sing these songs of ascent as they were going to Jerusalem, but during the festival, and especially the Festival of Tabernacles, what they would do, the Jews would go, they would start their morning, and they would start at the Pool of Siloam. And the high priest would grab this pitcher of water and dip it into the cool, refreshing waters of Siloam. And they would carry this pitcher through the streets, singing these psalms of ascent, almost in defiance to Rome at the time. They would go to the temple, and there would be a quick ceremony where the high priest would take that pitcher and he would pour it out, reminding the people of the blessings of God, what God had done for them in the past. But in John chapter 7, verses 36 through, I think it's 39, it's the last and greatest day of the feast. This is a little bit different. They go, go to the pool of Siloam. They march through the streets singing these psalms of ascent in defiance of Rome, remembering what God had done for them in the past. And they come to the temple, and the high priest has this pitcher. They do the same thing again. And this time he pours it out, and nothing comes out. And that's when Jesus... And there's a hush in the crowd as the high priest is pouring out nothing. Jesus says, if anyone is thirsty, come and drink from me. Holy buckets. See that emptying or the turning of the pitcher that has nothing? represents the blessings that are to come from God. And Jesus stands up and he says, if you're looking for a blessing, I'm it. Will you see it? I'm going to ask the band to step back up, the worship team to step back up. There's two things I need for you to take from this message. Actually, there's a number of things that I want you to take from this message. But maybe the two points. If you're in Jesus, your joy has a history. There have been moments in your life that have been difficult. 
But if you have truly turned your life over to God, John and Greg use the word disciple here. A disciple is a lifelong learner. The only way I know to be a lifelong learner of Jesus is to actually learn from what Jesus did. If you are becoming a disciple of Jesus, if you have been a disciple of Jesus for some time, you know the joy that God has allowed you to experience. It's far greater than a concert or a sporting event. And as a baseball coach, it's far greater than a victory because two days later, I got another game. The second thing is our joy has a future. As I said, God is all about redemption. He's about taking what was sown and allows it to become something far greater than what we can imagine. But we need to be patient. As a counselor, one of the things, as a pastoral counselor, one of the things that I get hit with an awful lot from people is the question of why. Why this? Why that? I've asked our folks to stop thinking about the why. Because the why is very clear. There's something that God is shaping you into here. So I ask people to change their mindset. It's just a little bit of a shift and start asking the question of what. What is it, God, that you want me to learn here? What is it that you're showing me here? I go back to my story of 2012. I resigned, I moved on, and I sat with no prospects of a job, not knowing where I would end up next. I even went, spent some time with Bill Gates. And I felt like I had been plucked out of life and set in the middle of a desert with no markings anywhere in sight, so I had no idea what direction to go. And for a season, I just existed. But in time, God gave me a marker. And I started walking towards it. The lessons that I learned in that time have been absolutely invaluable. Is it easy? No. Were there moments of tears? Oh, you better believe it. Moments of frustration? Mm-hmm. But see, because of what God had done in the past, 
had full confidence of what he could do in the future. Maybe one of the things that you can do is you can create a reverse timeline. Go home today. If you're struggling with something, something in your life, maybe it's your marriage. Maybe you're struggling with your kids. Maybe you're struggling with your boss or work. Maybe you're struggling with school being on the verge of coming back again. What if you go back and you see what God has done in the past for you? And understand that God is a God who can, will, and does so that we may have life and have it in abundance. Last point. If you're thirsty today and you have never experienced the refreshing waters of Jesus Christ, today I'm challenging you to try something different. Try something outside of yourself. Because see, the reality is everything you have done has brought you to this point here. Maybe you're in that Y in the road. Let's try something different. Maybe you've never experienced the joy of God. You've never experienced Christ. Greg can profess, and he did this morning, that something dramatically changed. See, for an addict and alcoholic not to drink and use is like a fish surviving outside of water. Doesn't happen. Fish breathe in water, alcoholics drink. That's what we do. But God changes all of us. some of you have experienced the blessings but the pitcher right now is empty trust in the Lord because your joy has a future but God is changing you so that you will enjoy and see Father God, this morning, we thank you so much for your beautiful word. And Father, every Sunday, we make the ascent to your church. And hopefully every day, we make the ascent to your throne. And it is at that throne that we are reminded of the blessings that you have bestowed upon us. And so many times, they aren't even anything that we thought that they would be. And they're far greater than whatever we could have imagined. Father, sometimes we come to the altar and we're broken and we're asking for the refreshing waters to flood our Negev, our desert. 
Father, I'm asking for each of us that we would have the courage to go ahead and sow whatever it is in our life that needs to be sown. That we will continue to do what you call us to do, but we will wait upon you knowing that not only are you able, but you want to bring the blessings again. And Father, of all the blessings that we have, the greatest is this, your son who died on the cross for each of us. Father, he came not to condemn us, but to save us. Father, right now, if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, has been chasing their own tail, and maybe they're at that Y in the road, there's a reason why they came today. If that's you this morning, I want you, as you're seated there, just to pray this simple prayer. Oh God, I'm a sinful man. I'm a sinful woman. Lord, I have read of your blessings in the past, but I have never experienced them. I want to find my blessings in you. And so today, I invite you to become part of me, God, to fill me with your spirit. And for me, I acknowledge you, Jesus, that you are Lord and Savior of my life. Save me, Lord. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Did you pray that prayer this morning? I'm not going to ask you to walk down the aisle. But I am going to ask you to do something very bold. And that's at the end of service. Don't you hesitate to come talk to me. Let's take the next step together. Let's get you plugged in in the discipleship program that is starting here. Let's find somebody that will meet with you and begin to groom you and mold you and shape you more and more in the image of Christ Jesus to help you do that, to rub shoulders with you in the process. Will you do that? Come on, man. Don't be bashful. Allow God to make you new and find your joy.